Isn't it funny how children imitate their parents? Any of you who have parents have seen your children trying to imitate you, and any of us who are here this morning don't have children, we've seen children try to imitate their parents. In fact, all of us have probably tried to imitate our parents when we were youths, when we were growing up. Paul taps into this natural instinct to replicate our parent. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, he in fact says, be imitators of God as beloved children or, or uh, greatly loved children. How do we do that? That's a good question. And I'm glad that we all asked that question because Paul sets out in our study this morning, the section of text that we're looking at today in Ephesians chapter 5, to help us understand that better. And he does, as we would expect, a fantastic job in doing it. So let's follow his thoughts, his train of thought, as we look at this uh, subject matter this morning, continuing our Dressed in Success series, how it is we're to dress or to walk like God. And uh, it's just really a continuation of what we've been looking at in this series. But here, Paul makes a short break between chapters 4 and 5. In fact, we, we kind of make that break. It's put in there by us. And in his letter, he kind of is shifting gears once again, even to a greater degree than where he's come from in his purpose for this letter of Ephesians. It is so good to see everybody here this morning. I know that you've already been welcomed. I want to welcome you also. I'm thankful that everybody is here. Personally thankful for that, genuinely, sincerely, uh, both member and guest alike. And, uh, and I hope that if you have questions about us, if you're a guest this morning, you'll ask those questions. If you're seeking for a spiritual family to be part of, that you'll talk with us about that or leave that on your, on your digital registration or your hard copy there in the rack in front of you. Love for you to communicate with us what it is you're looking for. Let's turn to our Bibles to the book of Ephesians now. I say that because I want us all to turn to our Bibles, to the book of Ephesians. And, uh, and as we're doing that, uh, I'll introduce some thoughts this morning. If you're using the Bible that's in the rack there in front of you, it's page 1157. But we want everybody who can and is able to use a Bible this morning. That's where God's Word is found. It's not found in me. It's found right there between the pages of that book. And I uh, want everybody to be familiar with it, acquainted with it. And if you don't have one at your house, a Bible at your house, take that one that's there with you. And we'll just give you that as God's gift to you uh, from the congregation here. The Apostle Paul's whole approach in the book of Ephesians, especially when we come to chapter 4 of this book, is to turn from the blessings that have been given by God's grace You've seen this chart before, we're reusing it a couple of times in this lesson, that details for us the first three chapters of the book and how those first three chapters are actually intended to show God's grace at work. In other words, how God's grace benefits the Christian, even still today. And then the, la the last three chapters of the book are to remind us of how that should affect us. Our reaction in faith to the grace that God has shown us. In Christian life, faith and behavior are meant to go together. They're they are always in that order, too. You have God's grace, then you have our faith, and then you have our behavior in response to that. You always find that over and over again, though oftentimes the religious world is really seemingly ignorant of it or rejects it, one or the other. 
That these things actually don't go together. We need to see these terms are not from different wardrobes in keeping with our, our theme of the wardrobe idea. These are not different wardrobes. They are not, in other words, set in opposition to one another, but rather these things overlap into the Christian existence. <laughs> That's why I have the name Christian right there in the middle. You could put your name there as well if you are a saved believer in Jesus. That's where all these things converge, is on us. Isn't that great? Could have converged on somebody else. Maybe didn't converge at all. But they do. All of them converge the way God has designed them for our benefit. In fact, they are layers within the same wardrobe that we are to wear. And it is why God feels the need, apparently, to reach out and, and talk to us through Paul the way that he does in places like this of Ephesians. How each layer is meant to go on top of the other layer. In fact, it's the physical brother of Jesus who clearly teaches if there isn't behavior to back up our faith based upon the grace that we receive through God, that our claim of belief is, in fact, false. Our faith is worthless. Not worth a thing. Not worth the word that even makes it up. Not only do we condemn ourselves before God, but the book of James would go on to show, not in the text we're going to read in just a second, but the, but the, but the book itself is, is iconic for helping us understand that we mess up those people who are actually searching for truth when we're not who we should be in reference to the truth and in the process of living out our faith in action or in works. James chapter 2, verse 17. Maybe you're familiar with this. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. And I've actually heard people say that. Have you? People live it a lot of times without saying it. But James says, show me your faith apart from your works. And I'll show you my faith by my works. The person says, I believe in who Jesus is, but they don't live like they believe who Jesus is because they don't do what Jesus says. They have no works to back up their faith. And James is making the case, if you understood grace and you understood how faith is based in that grace, then you would understand works must follow. Therefore, he says, you show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. Because that's the natural process. That's the logical process. So he says in verse 20, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? That's absolutely useless. Now there may be some here either sitting among us now or online listening to this and they say, but what about the very book that we're looking at? And how in chapter 2, Paul would say, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. Not a result of works that no one should boast. So which is it then? Grace? Faith? Works? Well, I've already given you the answer. <laughs> But I think we can think through that a little more and come up with logical conclusion as well. An unbiased student of the Bible should consider the very fact that Paul writes three chapters that tell us extensively of God's grace in the book of Ephesians. 
And then he writes three more chapters to tell us extensively what that should result in. And it's all about works because of our faith. Do you see, brothers and sisters, the Bible never contradicts itself with regard to such things as this. When it comes to doctrine, God is consistent in the way He's doing it. It's just that our perception is often erring. James does not disagree with Paul, and Paul does not disagree with James. In fact, Paul just takes a lot longer to say the same thing James does in a very short section of his text. Only then... Do we understand what Paul's talking about in the book of Ephesians when we understand God's grace that he spent time, extensive time in this letter, helping us to better understand? Showing how we should respond in works or actions is not contrary to biblical teaching. Through faith, our belief in God's undue love, his grace, and his favor towards us works. Because of God's favor upon you, and here's what we're getting to. This is the point. I'm, this is the question we want to ask ourselves. Is your faith, is my faith, lining up with our behavior? We understand God has been good to us. That's not an issue. We get God's grace. That's easy to see. Do we understand, however, that works and faith should line up as well, or faith and works, if we were to say it in the proper order, should line up as well? Here's the point. Some of the brethren might have been trying to live a double kind of life in Ephesus. Just as some Christians may try to do today. Well, I have faith. And they never think about their works. And James says, that's that's messed up. James says, you show me your faith without your works and I'll prove my faith by my works. Because it can't exist one without the other. Both James and Paul teach that it just doesn't work like that. Some seem to want so badly, I hope that we all take this to heart, some seem to want so badly to be approved by the world that they gradually deteriorate their relationship to God. You know where that is first seen? It's first seen by under-appreciating God's grace. It is seen then by having a lack of faith in God's grace and what that means in our life, and therefore we begin to become thankless and our works begin to falter. See how all those things are connected in the teaching of God. Paul is calling for us to do as Joshua did in generations before him, uh, before Paul, and remember these words, choose this day whom you will serve, and we do that daily. We constantly have that before us. What Joshua is calling for is stand up and make a choice in your faith in your life and let your works show that. Brother and sister, we need to know, first of all, God knows those who are his. In other words, what I'm saying to you is Nate Fritz can't fake out God. I can't pretend And God goes, wow, I was fooled by that. I really thought he was being faithful. We don't fool God. God knows who are faithful and God knows who are unfaithful. 
Secondly, we need to understand from this text, our fitting in with the world really isn't on God's to-do list for us. <laughs> I mean, he's really not concerned too much at all about whether or not Nate Fritz fits in with the world around him. That's not on his agenda for me. It's not on his agenda for you in your life either. It's not on his agenda for any Christian's life to fit in with the world. God doesn't want us concerned with looking and acting more like the world, but less like the world with regard to things that are contrary to him. Now, this isn't talking about whether or not we wear a suit or a t-shirt or shoes. Well, I mean, we probably all should wear shoes, but what color of shoes, you know, that kind of thing. Obviously, he's talking about spiritual connotation here. It's in the spiritual realm that he has concern for us, our eternal well-being. He is pleased when we're trying to look like, to imitate him. Although we all understand, as youthful children compared to our great God, our Father, we find ourselves imperfect in everything we're talking about. And in our attempts to imitate him, we oftentimes fall short. Yeah, that's true, isn't it? Paul says, therefore, you be imitators. I'd like to know where the word perfectly imitating him is in this text. If you can't find it there, it's because it's not there. This is who we're striving to be. This is who we want to be. This is who we're pursuing. This is it's just like the child. You remember when you were a kid and your mom or dad would tell you to do something and then you didn't do it quite as well as they wanted, so they'd tell you to do it 15 more times over and over again? You remember that? How aggravated you got by that? God's keeping us learning, growing, imitating Him is the point. Whether or not we get it perfect, well, that depends on how long we get to live. That depends on how many times he had us, has us try it again and again and again. Keep doing it because you get better every time you do it. Paul says, be imitators. That word imitate is the word mimic, clone, copy. It's a purposeful thing. It doesn't just happen on accident is the point that Paul's making. You have to actually subject yourself to trying to do what you see God, what you see in God. To copy what you see God wants and who God is. And then not, not only does he say your children, copy like children. That's one thing. That'd be all right. That isn't what he says. And understanding that word beloved or dear or special or precious, that's the idea behind that. That kind of a child in the sight of God. This is how God sees us, as children who are greatly loved. And that's why he puts effort into us. What does that mean in practical terms? Well, just real quickly, we can, we can figure that out. If God is good, should we be good if we're trying to imitate him? Yeah, these are, this is simple. Simple equations. If he's kind, then we should try to be people who are kind. If we see God as just, then we should be objective and fair as best we know how, and as best as we see in Him. If we understand how He sacrificed Himself for us in our life, then we should be set apart to His service. If we understand how 
he is sancti- how he is sanctified, then we should try to imitate that as best we can. Set apart for the use of God and his people and what is good and right. That list can just go on and on and on. Our behavior should look like what we believe and see in our Father. But these are not the only kind of things that would fit in the category of the text that we're looking at here. I want you to notice as you look at your text there that Paul actually mentions to begin with one particular thing first. Something which Paul writes on more than any other Bible writer, individual, in the Scriptures. He says, be imitators of God. Imitators of God. And how is it that we do that? Verse 2, walk in love. Not just any love, but a copy of God's love. Copy God in your love. Well, what kind of love does God have? Well, we have seen this before in previous lessons and earlier verses of this text. And that's that word that we talked about before, agape love. It's best seen through, as Paul points out here, Jesus himself. As Christ loved us, and here's a definition for the kind of love that he's talking about when he uses the term love, or or if you're familiar with that Greek term, agape, love, this is what he's talking about in that, and he defines it. He gave himself up for us. That defines the word love. He did out of a care for us what we could not do for ourselves as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now think about it. Why did Jesus come? Why did He spend time here when He did come? And why is it that He gave all the teachings that we have recorded for us in Scripture? Why did He do all of that? Was it for Himself or was it for others? Why was He willing to redeem those who had fallen short of God's glory? Why? Was it for Himself or was it for others? Why would any faithful follower of Jesus not give thanks and feel a sense of love, a copy of the kind of love we see in Christ in return? Here's a question for us to consider. Is our love stronger than the coercion and the deception, if we're to think about chapter 4, verse 22, that word deception that we've looked at before, why would any love be stronger for the world than for Christ when we understand the grace that's given through Him? Why? Our world calls anything that flares one's passion love, doesn't it? The problem is, without agape love, without this sacrificial kind of love, all other forms of love just simply become selfish. Think about it. Family, comrade in arms, brotherly love, sexual love, fellowship love like we have here. All of that just becomes selfish without... This agape love inserted into every one of those. The basis of all love, brothers and sisters, is meant to be agape love. This sacrificial love that does what's best for others, even before self. And as if we use the term that we've used before, it is that unconquerable love. Without this, we will only turn 
selfishly inward and destructive. In whatever kind of, quote, love we want to practice. For true love to exist, brothers and sisters, in God's family, in any relationship for that matter, it takes more than feelings which make one's own self happy. Please understand what, I'm, what we're talking about here. Get the point of what we're looking at. Don't let it just go in one ear and out the other. For true love to exist in God's people, it takes more than feelings which make one's, self own, uh, one's own self happy. It takes care. It takes concern for their well-being. And let's jump in a little bit further. For their eternal well-being. Paul points out Jesus was for us. He gave himself, what are those two words? For us, for us. He was for us. And we should be for one another. We're for God in return, and we're for God's family as well. And that revolves around more than just self. I want you to think about this for a second. True love will not lead others to a fractured relationship with God's self or his family. True love can't do that. It won't encourage others to do what is wrong, to think what is wrong, to react in a way that is wrong because of one's own selfish attitude of love. It does the opposite, you see. If I could just stop for a half a second here, I, I think it's a, an appropriate moment to deal with a social ill that we have in our nation, and really it's all around the whole world. And I'd just like to say one other thing before we move on here, and then we will move on. And it's about love. We need to understand, brothers and sisters, and I want the younger generation to hear this in particular. When the feelings that one has for another individual, including sexual feelings, when our not restraining those feelings results in another person's separation from God or eternal damnation, then we can know something for certain. That's a messed up love. That's not the kind of love that we see in Scripture. It's the kind of love that we get from the devil and the, the, the restraint that he has on the world, which takes a, a great thing that's been created by God and it twists it into something that God calls sexual immorality. And it sends people to hell. Now, when we hear our world saying, well, I love this person, or I love this thing, or I love that individual, but they don't have the right to love that person the way that they're speaking about it in a sexual manner, that sends people to hell. Therefore, we can know for sure that love has gotten messed up somewhere in the equation. God didn't create love to separate people from Him. He created love to bring people into Him. I can't come into God, I can't be who God wants me to be if I've got a love that is perverted and separating me from Him. That's a worldly love. 
That's a worldly love that's based upon one's own self, not upon the well-being and welfare of another with regard to their God and their eternal state. Everybody get that? Young people get that? Does that make sense to you? Can you see the difference between what the world says is love and what God says is true love? The kind that He created, not the kind that Satan took and twisted and perverted and shoved into our society. Paul says sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Sexual immorality. It's one word in the Greek. It's not, we have to define it with two words. Sexual immorality, but it's one word in the Greek. And that's the word pornea. It's where you can hear our word pornography comes from. Or porn. Porn meaning sexual. Ography meaning to display. Sexual display. By using this specific word, Paul is intentionally, there's no way to get around this, Paul is intentionally spotlighting, putting under a spotlight, bringing to light all sexual activity outside of the marriage relationship. Person, wow, wait a minute, how do we get that? Because all sexual activity outside of the marriage relationship is a sin. It sends people to hell. Person said, I don't like that. God didn't ask you if you like that. That's just a law. He's God. He makes the rule. We don't have to abide by it. It's our prerogative, if that's what we want, to be separated from him and lose our soul. But that's not what he wants, and that's not why he gave love. And we need to understand the difference between true love and perverted love. Twisted love. This would include adultery, heterosexual relationships, but not married. Adultery. Fornication, same thing. Homosexuality, lesbianism, bestiality, incest, you name it. It's in that word. And it's called immoral in the English language for a reason. So is God against sex? Great question. I'm glad you asked that. <laughs> I'm giving you all these questions you asked you didn't know you were asking but that, that's a great question isn't it is God then against sex I would just say to you that the Bible clearly teaches us he has blessed sex not just for anyone any way just like every other blessing he's given but specifically between a man and a woman in a lifelong marriage relationship and any use of sex in any other way, falls under this heading of pornea. It is condemned by God as sexual immorality. Secondly, what does sexual immorality have to do with what Paul has been talking about? Now look at, look at your text there for yourself and ask yourself that question. How did we just get here? <laughs> I mean, it goes, he goes from talking about well, let's read it. Verse 2, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. And then he just jumps right off into not being part of sexual immorality and all impurity and greed. 
What does that have to do with the love that we see in God? Now, maybe you're making that connection, but I'd say we could probably make it a little bit more if we consider who he's writing to and the time period in which he's writing. I think that will help us to understand a little better, don't you? In fact, it seems completely reasonable if you consider the Ephesian brethren's history. Consider the pagan society that they were living in. They were accustomed to offering sacrifices to the false deity, Diana, Diana being the Roman goddess, mythological goddess, and Artemis, the the Greek mythological goddess, patron of the city of Ephesus. I mean, like when you thought of Ephesus, you thought of this goddess. She was their goddess, and they held her in high regard. What do you think was attributed to this cult deity? If you said hunting in the moon, you got it right. That's exactly right. Hunting in the moon. Probably you weren't thinking that if you're like me. You know where I'm going with that. Not only was she the goddess of game or hunting and nighttime, the moon specifically, but she also was the goddess that they attributed fertility and sexuality as a result to. Fertility and sexuality. In fact, They were so devoted in this cult that they made a temple which was so grand, it was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. I know you can't get a picture of it there. If you've ever seen pictures or been over to the Parthenon in Athens, Greece, this thing was four times larger than that. That's pretty big. It's much bigger than a football field. And as is true with most things that governments get their fingers in, it's not about what is right or wrong that they were so dedicated to this God, and this government was so dedicated to this God, but it was because of the money and the notoriety that came from it. And they were known over the whole world at that time for this, for this false deity to whom everyone paid homage because of the fertility and sexuality that she displayed. Is there any wonder then he tackles this the way he does in Scripture? Is there there any doubt in our mind why Paul says, I've got to make it a point to talk about the worship that they're used to and the worship that they have come to know in Christ, through Christ, to the real God? Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, is to make an unmistakable comparison between who they were used to worshiping and who they now were worshiping. You know what? Sometimes I really believe, even among God's people today, we need to hear that. Because, not of a false deity called Diana, but because of a false nature, a false society that we find ourselves in. Over and over again, all we see is sexuality exploited. Over again, over and again, all we see are those things that are perverted rather than what is right and good. Let me ask you a question. When you think about love, do you think about Jesus on the cross or do you think about something else? If it's something else, you see, then what we're really being, what we're really admitting is, is that our society has had a profound effect on us. Just like theirs did. Just like these Ephesians. 
When they heard about love, first thing comes to their mind is perverted stuff. And by that, I don't mean just, you know, nasty. I'm just talking about living outside of marriage together as husband and wife when you're not. Or homosexuality or lesbian. All the things that we could talk about that are in our society when we think about love or see it on TV. It's not Jesus hanging on the cross. It's other stuff. And it messes up our thinking. It messes up what God really intended for us to consider in our love displayed toward others. It becomes inward, selfish. It's messed up. Do you see the contrast he's making where one calls for marriage and sacrifice for another? The other, it's calling for people to give in to their messed up desires, selfishness, sexual immorality, impurity, and greed. He was forcing them to consider if their love was one of self-service or one that was a copy of what they saw in the Father. And brothers and sisters, he's making us do the same thing when we read that. No different. And then he says, let there be fil uh, no filthiness, literally vulgar obscenities. It's interesting, down in verse 12 of, of chapter 5, it's, that same Greek word is translated shameful. Filthiness, shamefulness should go together. When we're being filthy, we should have shame in that. To God, they're one and the same. And then he says, nor foolish talk, the Greek word here, isn't talking about jokes. It's not talking about when you walk up to some brother or sister and say, hey, what do you think about this weather? Useless talk. Who cares about the weather, really? God's in control of it. It's going to be what it is, right? But it's talk. It's not, it's not what he's talking about, uselessness in our talk or frivolous talk. He's not talking about having a sense of humor. The Lord gave laughter and he gave humor, and those things are healthy for us to partake in. What he's talking about here is the Greek word morologia. And you can hear the word moral in that word. It's exactly what he's talking about. That which is morally corrupt. It's unfitting to speak. It's rude. Paul adds, or crude joking, which are out of place. The opposite of what is pure and kind and wholesome. It's not the first time that you've read those words. We've talked about them in chapter 4, verse 29. If I could just remind you briefly as we pass by this, let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths. The word corrupt literally means rotten or putrefied. That's disgusting. <laughs> it even sounds bad coming out, <laughs> coming out of your mouth, putrefied. That which is not fit to be in one's mouth or come out of one's mouth. Worthless. But only, he says, such is good for building up. What a great text that is to, to relate to the one we're looking at here in chapter 5. So Paul teaches us that if we are speaking in ways that tear others down or that damage others, intentionally hurt others, or, or if our words are obscene, or if they're rude, or if they're crude, then we're not walking worthy of our calling back up to chapter 4 verse 1. 
Brothers and sisters, the fact is, we can praise God. We no longer live in depravity like we once did. All of these things that I'm mentioning, I have been partaking in and you have partaken in. This is what you call living worldly life, not a Christian life. And if we, if we think we've always been living a Christian life, then why, did we, why, why is it we became a Christian in the first place if we were all moral and, and acceptable to God beforehand? And the fact of the matter is, we know where we come from, but we can forget. And thanks to God, we genuinely want our speech pointing others to Him. Building up each family member that God has given us, from youngest to oldest, without rudeness or impatience or unkindness or filthiness in some way. Everyone is vulnerable. It's true to the sins that we've talked about here. But brethren, that ought not to hinder us from being valuable. Everyone has something to give in God's body. And we can show that in the way that we communicate with others who are part of God's body. It's part of walking the Christian life. It's part of putting on the wardrobe God wants us to put on. Finally, in all this, he says, walk in thanks. And that is why Paul goes on to say, instead, instead of those things, instead of that. It would be great if Paul just pointed out how we can go wrong, right? He doesn't just do that. Notice what he's doing. He's pointing out how we can go wrong, and he's saying, replace it with this. Here you go. Here's the solution to that problem over there. So implement this. Instead, let there be thanksgiving in verse 4. When we consider thanksgiving, how far that goes in our walking worthy of our calling. When I'm thankful for you, I don't treat you in a way that is disrespectful. When I'm thankful for you, I don't say things that I think are going to push you away from God. Or vice versa is true. When we're thankful for one another, we don't have a messed up kind of love. But a love that's like a copy of our Father that we use toward our siblings in God's family. The word seldom speaks of thanks. The world seldom speaks of thanks the way God does. And what that means to us, brethren, when we read instead, be thankful that there is a whole lot of room for us to be the kind of salt and light that the world only wishes they could find. Paul finishes this text off in plain reiteration. For you may be sure. Do not think that you, that the rules don't apply to you, that you're somehow exempt. He says, be sure of this, that everyone, that includes Christian or non-Christian, who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, one who is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So he becomes very plain about them in their society with this false religion that they were part of, or had been part of before they became Christians. But he's still teaching the same to us. We can't afford to be blatant and unchanging when it comes to sin 
which can exist in our life and destroy us. We have to be tenderhearted toward God's will. God is not only a God of grace and mercy and love, which our world loves to emphasize. I get that. But God teaches about himself. He is also a God of justice and vengeance upon impure hearts. And he does not respect anyone in regard to his judgment. In other words, he says, well, you're my child, so I'll let you just slip by on this thing. I know that you knew about it because I told you about it, but, but I'll just let you slip by because I favor you more than anybody else. He does favor us, that's sure. See that in the first three chapters. But what he's saying in this text is, don't think judgment does not come on those who are his. When someone knows they're doing wrong and persists in doing that which is wrong, judgment does come on that person. The blood of Christ does not cover sin, which is just dog-determined in my life. I don't care what God wants. I'm going to do what I want, how I want, when I want. And I know what He says, but don't bother me with those facts. The blood of Jesus does not exist in that person's life. They don't get grace, and they certainly don't understand faith, and they really don't understand what that should result in. And that is a change of life. A change of life. Let no one deceive you with empty words. They say something contrary to what he has taught us this morning. Don't be deceived. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And we'll stop right there in verse 6 this morning. I'm reminded of the, the story about the boy's mom who placed some fresh baked cookies in the cookie jar and then gave clear instruction to her son, where none of the family is going to eat these cookies until after supper. Nobody gets these cookies. It's about 10 a.m. in the morning. Pretty soon she heard the cookie jar lid kind of clanging against the cookie jar, and she, I want to say yells out. That, that's not what I mean, but she speaks loudly out across the house, and she says, son, what are you doing? And she hears this meek little voice in response, my hand is in the cookie jar and I'm resisting temptation. <laughs> and I wonder sometimes if that's not me. As a child of the king, who's had everything given to me that I could ever want, and you, everything you could want. But those good things have limitations. They have boundaries placed on them by the one who created them. And God says, don't get into that. And then he says, what are you doing? And I say, well, I got my hand in the cookie jar, just resisting temptation. Like that's really going to work. We all see the, the error of the young child's ways, but do we see sometimes the error of our own ways? And how we think we can get so close to sin and not be burned. We can think just up to the line and perform just up to the line. Well, I don't have to do this. I don't have to do that. I don't need Bible class studies. I don't need to go. I'm not going to go. I don't need worship to go. I'm not going to go. Well, I don't have to treat everybody with a certain amount of dignity and respect. This person really gets after me, gets on my nerves, like the last one. 
You see what I'm saying? How we can take the things that God gives that are good and we can think to ourselves, we can get up to the line, we can be just short of where we need to be, our hands in the cookie jar, but we're not going to take anything that's going to cause us destruction. The only people who think that are the people who look back and realize they took everything out of the cookie jar. Their life has been a constant embellishment of falling short and not minding it. And we can't afford to be that way. Now, I want to tell you after all of this and after harping on all of this, just very briefly, thankfulness to be part of God's people here. (laughs) The phone's telling me to shut up and move on. It's all right, mine's already done it too, you just didn't hear it. It is a wonderful thing when we can look among God's people and we can see people who really do desire what we've talked about this morning, to eradicate the old wardrobe, to throw those things out, and to be a person who exists in the wardrobe of Christ. It's fantastic. And I appreciate you all for that. I haven't preached on these things because I think that we fall short. I'm preaching on them so we don't. But I'll tell you this, I can improve. And I imagine we all feel that way. We continue to grow in Christ, filled with sacrificial love that we see in Jesus. We continue to grow in uplifting language because it's so easy to be tainted by our world. To think impure and to say impure things. Willing to make provisions in our lives to do what is right, to not fall into sexual immorality, to not fall into greed, to be quick to give thanks to God and those who draw near to Him. That's a privilege to be part of. You have that privilege and I have that privilege. And it's given to us, to a large degree, by the grace and the mercy of God. What a father it is that we have, and how caring he is for our well-being and our eternal life as he's given it to us. He has forgiven us. He's brought us into a family who loves one another and loves him. And there are things that words just can't express. And that's some of it. What that means to us It just makes us all the more determined to grow deeper and deeper in connection with our great God and His fantastic family. How much we should be thankful when oftentimes we might not be, but how great it is that He reminds us of it. Let's close in a word of prayer as we we give thanks. Oh Lord God, You are aware of the kind of world that we live in. And you have constantly made us aware so that we not fall victim to it. And you've done this out of your grace and goodness, and we appreciate you so much for that. Wanting to help us to draw clear, uh, near to you. To be clear of the world. To suppress those things that are of the world that would pull us down and corrupt us. To be lifted up by you. So that we are not heartless. We're not unjust or unloving. You teach us a more excellent way, a way to be light in this dark world 
and salt of the earth as you have created us for. The way to live and to be examples that honor you, that benefit others around us, that make your family better, and that care about those who are still lost and are looking for more. Thank you for our brother Paul and for his teaching, which comes from you. Help us to wear the abundant and the wealthy clothing, the wardrobe that you have given us graciously, with dignity, consistency, with honor, of who it represents, our great Father, as his children. Help us to wear that in such an attractive way that it will cause others to want to put you on as well, to walk in your way, to be part of your great family. We thank you, Father, for all that you have done, all that you are doing, and all that you will do. In the name of Jesus, amen. If this morning you find your eternal condition separated from God, there's not one reason in the world, literally, why you would leave here that, in that condition. Right now, God's invitation is offered. Maybe you need to speak with a member here, or me, one of the others that you know is a member here, privately, talk more about it, understand more about where you're at and where to go from there. Or maybe it is that you already know, and you've just been putting it off, and today's the day you decide to become a Christian. We're here for you in that. If you'll come forward while together we stand and as we sing.